Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Welcome to Murder Mile, a true crime podcast, an audio-guided walk, featuring many of London's untold, unsolved and long-forgotten murders, all set within and beyond the West End. Today's episode is about Sir Bernard Spilsbury, the acclaimed pathologist and father of forensic science, whose most celebrated case made his name and changed the face of murder investigations forever. But how solid was his evidence, and did it lead to an innocent man being executed? Murder Mile is researched using the original police files. It contains moments of satire, shock, and grisly details, and as a dramatization of the real events, it may also feature loud and realistic sounds, so that, no matter where you listen to this podcast, you'll feel like you're actually there. My name is Michael, I am your tour guide, and this is Murder Mile. Episode 115, The Lethal Evidence of Sir Bernard Spilsbury. Today, I'm standing on New Oxford Street, WC1. Two roads north of the St Giles Workhouse where Charlie Chirgwin's life was ended by an official's little job's worth. Two roads south of Zachariah Bullhand's delirious rampage in Russell Square. A few doors down from the deadly tidal wave at the Mayo & Co Brewery. And one street east of the bloody conclusion to the Mummy's Boy's killing spree. Coming soon to Murder Mile. Situated just shy of the Tottenham Court Road tube station, unlike Oxford Street, New Oxford Street is a vague part of Bloomsbury, where a multitude of people pass through every day, but no one stops, as there's no real shops. There are the usual branded things, like a coffee place, a sushi place and a burger place, as well as a pub chain, a church and a pointlessly tacky tourist shop, which sells stereotypically British crap covered in Union Jacks, all of which were made in China. But there's no reason to head here, or even to stay. At 55 to 57 New Oxford Street, on the junction of Bloomsbury Street, sits Albion House. A nine-storey, glass-fronted eyesore on a small square block, which rents out its offices to an odd mishmash of small businesses, such as a dentist, an estate agent, an energy consultant, a radio engineer, and even a darts-themed pub. 
more than a century ago. The original Albion House was a four-storey building with an identical purpose. In room 15 was a small independent druggist called Munyon's Remedies, a patent medicine company churning out a plethora of potions to put pay to all kinds of ailments in an unregulated era. Back when an old quack could concoct a wonder cure, regardless of whether it worked or not. During the January of 1910, being sat alone to brood, it was in that building that a small bespectacled man met his mistress, formed his deadly plan, and a few doors away, he purchased the poison to end his wife's life. The trial made Sir Bernard Spilsbury a celebrity. His medical testimony became bulletproof, it changed the face of forensic science, and it would become one of the world's most infamous murder cases ever. And yet, it was here, in room 15 of Albion House, that a ghastly murder was supposedly concocted. But how accurate was Sir Bernard's evidence? And did his ego send an innocent man to his death? Bernard Henry Spilsbury was born on the 16th of May 1877, above his father's chemist's shop at Two Regents Place in Leamington Spa. Stemming from a long line of working-class innkeepers, his father James sought a loftier existence for his eldest son and pushed him to live the life that he never could. As the first-born son of James Spilsbury Jr., being a young boy, Bernard adopted his father's passion for science and his fascination for crime, as well as his ambition, his work ethic and the need to be respected. But he also absorbed his father's coldness, his arrogance and his lack of empathy. Educated privately at home, with no one to interact with but his siblings, his tutor and the housemaids, Bernard made no friends, especially when, age nine, his parents abandoned him to a boarding school for three years, a new world which he was ill-equipped to deal with. Being quiet, he kept to himself, he resented others, and hearing only his own opinions, he became fixated by his own success, beliefs and superiority. But as his father expanded his business further, the family were often uprooted. In 1889, they moved to Salford in Manchester. In 1890, they moved to Crouch End in London, with Bernard briefly educated at University College School. And in 1892, age 15, his father enrolled Bernard at Owens College in Manchester to study chemistry, physics, and biology, as his family stayed behind in London. He had no friends, no family, no interest, and no drive. And feeling isolated, he spent much of his time walking alone. In 1895, aged 18, James Jr. sent Bernard to study natural science at Magdalen College in Oxford to fulfill his father's dream 
of becoming a doctor. Described as lazy, argumentative and ill-prepared, Bernard's tutors said that he was a moderate student who disliked being proved wrong, refused to read the text properly and was unlikely to get even a third-class degree. In 1898, he passed with a second, but only just. It's baffling to think that the future Home Office pathologist and father of forensic science, whose damning evidence would hang people's lives on his every word, was at best a D-grade student. But he was. In September 1899, age 23, having failed to get a scholarship at St. Mary's Hospital in Paddington, Bernard enrolled as a medical student at St. Mary's, with no plans, no interests, no medical speciality, and no career. And yet, it was at St. Mary's that he would meet Augustus Pepper, and his life would change forever. August Joseph Pepper was a senior surgeon at St. Mary's and as a noted pathologist to the Home Office, was witness for the Director of Public Prosecutions. With pathology and forensic science still being in its infancy, being regarded by the medical establishment as the beastly science, as one of the few trusted experts, Pepper was in high demand at London's murder trials. Being fascinated by Pepper, Bernard became his assistant, a menial role in which he prepared the bodies for autopsy. But every day was a revelation, and he loved learning from this new father figure. In November 1904, at Thames Police Court, Bernard made his first appearance as expert witness to the prosecution in the murder of Emily Farmer, a shop assistant who the police surgeon had stated had died of suffocation, having been gagged by robbers. A crime that warranted the lesser charge of manslaughter. Oddly, for such a solitary, arrogant and obstinate man like Bernard, in court, he found his true voice. By dressing smartly, speaking well and never using fancy words to show off his intellect, he impressed both the lawyers and the jurors by delivering a well-explained analysis of the medical facts in layman's terms, defending the cross-examination in a quiet and convincing way and demolishing the police surgeon's theory. Bernard's evidence was so lethal that the robbers, Conrad Donovan and Charles Wade, were found guilty, not of robbery nor manslaughter, but of murder and both were sentenced to death. Over the next few years, Bernard developed his experience, his knowledge and his techniques. He passed his second medical degree and became the resident assistant pathologist at St. Mary's, alongside Pepper. In July 1909, as August Pepper retired from St. Mary's and as the pathologist to the Home Office, at the tender age of just 33 years old, Bernard Spilsbury became his successor. His first notable case as pathologist occurred on the 12th of July 1909 in the hair salon of Harrods, 
where 20-year-old Horndell Rimple ordered a dry shampoo from an experienced stylist called Patrice Clark. Using a highly toxic but entirely legal mix of carbon tetrachloride and carbon bisulfate, a potion stronger than chloroform, although it had been safely used for six years prior, it resulted in the young girl's death. At Kensington Coroner's Court, Bernard proved to the jury that the shampoo was fatal, and Patrice Clark and the salon's manager, William Erdley, were charged with manslaughter. Bernard was a lethal witness. His knowledge was exhaustive, his evidence was trusted, his testimony was infallible, and the jury's hung on his every word. But the biggest case of his life was yet to come. Prior to Spilsbury, forensic science was an afterthought in the murder investigation, as the police relied exclusively on witnesses, statements, evidence, and a copper's instinct. But science was just a wishy-washy nonsense. Being barely out of the Victorian era, where a constable was more of a moral guardian than he was a detective. It was not uncommon for the police to rearrange a dead body to preserve its dignity, to wash away any bloodstains for fear of offending any passers-by, or to send the victim's clothes to the cleaners before being examined by a pathologist. Crime scenes were rarely secure, evidence was lost, nothing was bagged and preserved, and even in court, Many pathologists' theories were debunked as lazy, inaccurate, and arrogant. Bernard Spilsbury changed all of that, and he would make his name in one famous case. Born in Coldwater, Michigan, on the 11th of September, 1862, Hawley Harvey Crippen was a small, meek man of just 5 foot 3 inches tall, and a slender seven stone in weight. With bookish spectacles, a neat mop of thinning ginger hair on his head, and a walrus-like moustache which was too big for his tiny round face. As a softly spoken and old-fashioned doctor, he specialised in ears, nose and throats, and was a qualified dentist. But being restless, he often flitted between different career paths when boredom struck. In 1894, Crippen met and married Corinne Henrietta Turner, known as Cora, a musical singer who went by the stage name of Belle Elmore. Being taller and sturdier than her tiny besotted beau, the two were an ill-matched couple right from the start. As whereas she always strode, he hid in her shadow, and being little more than her henpecked husband. Throughout their marriage, she had many affairs, and her true love was back in Chicago. In 1897, they moved to 34 Store Street in Bloomsbury, London. But with Crippen not sufficiently qualified to practice as an English doctor, he earned a modest living concocting homeopathic remedies for a patent medicine company called Munyon's Remedies, based in Albion House at 55 to 57. New Oxford Street. The building was fortuitous, 
as being a multi-occupancy premises for small anonymous businesses. As he sat alone in room 15, devising a range of supposed remedies for common complaints like nausea, colds and nerves, by mixing natural and synthetic ingredients like willow, eucalyptus, cocaine and morphine with a large dollop of sugar, it gave Crippen the opportunity to keep a jealous eye on Cora and her affairs. As Albion House was also the home of the Music Hall Ladies Guild, where they were both treasurers. Droid's Institute for the Deaf, with Crippen as a patron. And here he also managed his wife's singing career. In 1905, they moved to 39 Hilldrop Crescent in Camden, North London. With their 11-year marriage in tatters, but unwilling to divorce owing to Crippen's traditional values and religious beliefs. The shameful lies of their illicit liaisons struggled on for another five years. And as Cora started another affair in their home with one of their lodgers, Crippen began an affair with the Deaf Institute's typist, Ethel Laneve. What happened next is mysterious and incredulous, but it would slip the noose around Crippen's neck. On the 19th of January 1910, at a chemist shop called Lewis and Burroughs at 108 New Oxford Street, directly opposite Albion House, as a herbalist who had visited there many times before, Crippen purchased five grams of hydrobromide of hyacinth, an entirely legal drug which is still used today for nausea, travel sickness, and as a cough suppressant. And like many drugs, in larger doses, it can be fatal. On the 31st of January 1910, after a party at 39 Hilldrop Crescent, at which neither of their moods were described as friendly, Cora disappeared leaving behind many of her personal belongings. On the 2nd of February, Crippen wrote a letter in Cora's handwriting, resigning her position as treasurer, stating that she had gone to California to nurse a sick relative. On the 20th of February, Crippen's mistress, Ethel Laneve, moved into 39 Hilldrop Crescent, and at a function for the Music Hall Ladies Benevolent Fund, she was seen wearing Cora's furs and jewellery. With Cora's loved ones growing concerned, on the 24th of March 1910, Crippen sent a telegram stating that Cora had died in Los Angeles. And as no one could find her, her friends notified Scotland Yard. Believing this to be nothing but a domestic, and bowing to the pressure of the press, who asked, how a woman could go missing for six months without the police lifting a single finger. Crippen was finally interviewed on the 8th of July 1910 by Chief Inspector Walter Jew. A perfunctory search of the house was conducted and Crippen admitted that he had fabricated the letter and made up the story about Cora's death as he was deeply ashamed that she had left him having gone back to Chicago to be with her true love. Bruce Miller. With the press picking holes in this sensational story, the next day, 
On the 11th of July, Inspector Ju went to Albion House, only to discover that Crippen and Leneve had fled to Antwerp and boarded a boat to Canada. That day, under severe public scrutiny, the police conducted a thorough search of the house, including the coal cellar, but they found nothing. Two days later, under that same brick floor of the coal cellar, they discovered a set of hair curlers, a tuft of bleached hair, and the lower half of a torso wrapped in Crippen's pyjama jacket. Initially inconclusive as to whether it was animal or human, although its decayed internal organs were found in situ, the body was missing its head, limbs, bones and sex organs. The only identifiable part was a 6 by 7 inch piece of flesh, possibly from the upper thigh and lower buttock. But the victim's age, height, weight, gender and identity were impossible to establish from such a small specimen. On the 31st of July 1910, Crippen and Leneve were arrested on board a liner and returned to London to face trial for murder. The murderous case of Dr. Crippen was front-page news right across the world, with the press and the public voracious for details, but critical of the police's early ineptitude. So needing a conviction, Inspector Jew sent the torso to the Home Office pathologist Bernard Spilsbury and out of retirement, August Pepper. The police only had very circumstantial evidence. The lower part of the torso was proved to be human. The pyjama top was Crippen's. The hair strands matched Cora's natural hair. And Crippen had admitted to fabricating two letters in a telegram, having fled to Canada with his mistress. It was all very suspicious, but it did not constitute evidence. All they had was a small piece of skin with a very small scar but forensic science would save the day. The five-day trial began at the Old Bailey on Tuesday the 18th of October 1910, with August Pepper rebuffing the defense's assertions that the skin, which showed few signs of decay, having been buried in a waterlogged soil for six months, had been preserved in an excellent state owing to quicklime in the clay. On Thursday the 20th, William Wilcox, the Home Office's senior scientific analyst, confirmed the presence of a lethal dose of hydrobromide of hyacinth in the torso's liver, as purchased by Crippen. And that same day, being elegantly dressed and eloquently spoken, Spilsbury put the final nail in Crippen's coffin. By matching the scar, to an identical scar that Cora's younger sister, Teresa Hunt, had seen across Cora's abdomen, having had an ovariotomy. The cross-examination of the defence was terrible. Ethel Leneve shifted the blame onto Crippen, and with this creepy little man unwisely giving evidence, as the medical experts had proven a date, a place, a method and an identity 
with just a single piece of skin. After only 27 minutes of deliberation, Dr. Hawley Harvey Crippen was found guilty and sentenced to death. Wearing a fashionable top hat, spats and striped trousers, as the media darling of the trial, Bernard became the first honorary pathologist to the Home Office, an honorary member of the CID, and being knighted in 1923, Sir Bernard Spilsbury was highly respected in the law courts and his evidence was hailed as lethal as it was bulletproof. That same year, he created the murder bag which revolutionized police investigations and forensic science. And across his 50-year career, he would conduct more than 20,000 autopsies, providing key pieces of evidence and resulting in hundreds of convictions in some of Britain's most infamous murder cases. Sir Bernard Spilsbury was held as brilliant and his testimony was untouchable. As even when he was doubted by experts, to every jury, his word became gospel. But as a cold and arrogant prima donna, who believed that he was truly infallible, some of those convictions are still being disputed today. Infamous cases like Thompson and Bywaters, John George Smith, John Robinson, Herbert Armstrong, Jeannie Baxter, and Albert Dearnley. At whose trials? Suicides were disproved, bruises vanished, evidence was omitted, and the presence of arsenic would magically materialize when other experts had failed to find a single trace. Even in the case of Emily Bale Biquet, he implied that she died by a blow to the head, only her head was never found. Sir Bernard Spilsbury was also the pathologist on cases we've covered before like Dutch Lair, Louis Voisin, the Charlotte Street Robbery, the Blackout Ripper, and of course, Dr. Hawley Harvey Crippen. Several issues came up at their trial, but they were all expertly defended by Wilcox, Pepper and Spilsbury. Firstly, William Wilcox admitted that he had only found that fatal dose of hyacinth in the liver after he was told that Crippen had purchased five grains of the drug from Lewis and Burroughs, and its bottle was never found. Secondly, August Pepper stated that he didn't find the scar until two months after the autopsy, and only after he had heard about Cora's ovariotomy. And thirdly, Spilsbury refuted any claim that it wasn't an operation scar on her abdomen, even though the skin had no belly button, pubic hairs, or sebaceous glands. Experts for the defense stated that it was either a skin fold or a stretch mark, but there was no evidence of cutting or healing. So did the police, aided by Pepper and Spilsbury, manipulate the facts to bring about a successful conviction in a publicly scrutinized and sensational case, which was based on circumstantial evidence. Consider this. 
Crippen was an unlikely murder suspect. Small, meek and henpecked, with no convictions or history of violence. The poison was an odd choice, given that he had regular access to cocaine and morphine. And the torso was only found by the police on the third search of the house, with a sample of the victim's hair and their chief suspect's pyjama jacket. But if this mild-mannered man had hacked up his wife's body and successfully disposed of her head, limbs and bones, none of which have ever been found, and expertly removed any clue as to her age, sex or weight, why did he bury half of her torso under his own cellar? Why was the only clue to her identity a supposed ovarian scar? And if Crippen was right about Cora leaving him for her true love, if the torso wasn't Cora's, then where did it come from? Perhaps a grave, a hospital, or maybe a mortuary? And then, consider this. In October 2007, Dr. David Ferran of Michigan State University subjected that same scar tissue to DNA testing and compared it to the mitochondrial DNA of three of Cora's surviving great-nieces. The DNA proved that the torso was not Cora Crippen. In fact, it wasn't even a woman, but a man. The 1940s would prove to be a difficult decade for Sir Bernard. Addicted to painkillers, crippled by two strokes, and chronically depressed owing to the collapse of his marriage, the death of his sister, and both of his sons, his mental health was in sharp decline as his work became all he had left. Having humiliated so many experts, he had very few friends, and now, age 70, he was making mistakes in his autopsies. On the evening of the 17th of December, 1947, Sir Bernard entered his small bleak laboratory on the second floor of the University College Hospital. He hung up his hat, tidied his workbench, destroyed a few files and a photo of his wife and himself. And being sat on a cheap wooden chair, he turned on a gas tap. At 8.10pm, smelling gas, a laboratory technician found Bernard collapsed and unconscious. He was declared dead at 9.10pm. Many options were considered as to why he had died natural causes owing to heart disease, or accidental death as he had no sense of smell. But with his closest friend, Sir Bentley Purchase, conducting the autopsy. At the inquest, it was declared that Sir Bernard Spilsbury had died by suicide whilst the balance of his mind was disturbed. He was cremated at Golders Green on the 22nd of December 1947, with only 22 mourners in attendance. With both men dead, the truth about Crippen's guilt goes to their graves. But if Sir Bernard Spilsbury had fabricated evidence for his own needs, 
Let us ask two last questions. Can we really trust his findings in any of these cases? And if we can't, then how many innocents were executed at the hands of his lethal evidence? Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. After an advert, for something you've probably never considered buying, we have lots of fascinating details about this case, plus a little quiz, some ranting and rambling by me over something entirely pointless, probably some obsessing about either, obviously, and then I shall press stop. Good riddance. Before that, a big thank you to my new Patreon supporter, who is Jessica Peters. I thank you. Your goodies are in the post and should be with you very soon. Feel free to make all of your friends very, very jealous. Plus, a special thank you to you and 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 you. But not you, because you're, you know, yeah. That was a joke. Murder Mile was researched, written and performed by myself, with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult with No Name. Thank you for listening and sleep well. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Lummy. <laughs> oh, dear Lord. Done. Done, done, done. Started well. Faltered in bits. It's weird. I could some of that bits I was going I was on a good run. I was like, oh that's going well. And then other bits I was like, ah oh, shit, I'm stumbling again. Oh. And then there was a little spider that kept crawling over my screen halfway through. And I kept I kept trying to get rid of him and go go like blowing him away, going blow away, and then he'd come back and crawl. It's like, why are you obsessed with crawling over my screen, you little bum hole? Anyway, uh so that's that. Hope you enjoyed that. That was something a little bit different, I thought. So instead of just focusing on a murder case, we were focusing on the kind of behind the scenes and 
Obviously, we've got all the cases that we've dealt with before with Sir Bernard as the pathologist, as mentioned, Louis Voisine, Dutch Layer, Blackout Ripper. There's so many times that I've mentioned um, Sir Bernard Spilsby as the pathologist in all of these cases. And then so when you look back at his history and you look back at who he was and you look back at the uh, the fact that, you know, did he kind of manipulate evidence in order to get a, a conviction moving forwards that way? Do you know, was he was he? Uh, guided by the police because the police are in kind of a bit of a shit point at that point for doing very little so do you know were, did they manipulate uh, uh the evidence in a very circumstantial case in order to get a conviction that they needed in order to put an end to it it's not the first time it happens interestingly at the end of um end of, uh what's going to start next week will be another case to do with a uh, kind of a bit of a dodgy pathologist as well so uh that's that so i'm gonna make myself a cup of tea uh and open a open a window a little bit and uh what shall i have tea or coffee i think it's tea time i definitely think it's tea time oh i've got any water oh my god arse I'm gonna have to open up a fresh bottle. Ooh, that's exciting. Life doesn't get any more exciting than that. Whoa. Water in. There we go, tea on. Uh, yeah, just making sure that the spider hasn't jumped into my, uh, my uh, teacup. There we go. Right, coming back, coming back. Coming back. Da, 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 da. Right, what's going on? Not very much. Uh, we're getting close to winter. Um, I filled up with all my winter stuff, which is very good. The the coal boat man went past on Friday, and I popped out and went, "Oh, have you got any gas?" And he went, "He went, no, I haven't got anything. I'm going to collect stuff. I'll be back either tonight or tomorrow morning." And I thought, oh, "Shit, I'm going out tonight." And uh, in the morning, I'll probably be asleep. And I did. I, I massively overslept, and I thought, "Shit, I missed the coal man." And then Sunday, I was busy working away, and I heard a, a banging. I was like, "What the hell is that?" Coal man had gone past. He saw my boat. He stopped. Came back. He went. You wanted gas, didn't you? I went, oh, thank you. So while I was there, I stocked up, got all my gas, got some extra coal, filled it with all my diesel for the for the winter. Whoa, it's all very nice now. So uh, I think I think I'm ready for winter now. Bring it on! Bring it on! Uh, but I'm still haven't got the fire on yet because it's still hot water bottle time. It's last night was all right. I didn't need too many hot water bottles. So it's nice. Uh, what's going on? So I'm recording this, and then I'm going to go on my little cycle. Uh, might be today, might be tomorrow, depending on the weather, because I don't use public transport anymore because of ugh, people who don't use masks and things like that. You can't, I'd rather be on my bike, a bit of fresh air. Do you know, you feel like you've earned some cakes afterwards. So I'm going to go into town and film all the bits to go with this, which will be good. And that's good. You can keep socially distanced on your bike as well. Uh, what else is going on? Um... I'm uh, staying good. I'm in my lockdown, being good, keeping away. I met with some friends recently. I know you're not meant to do that, but we were very good. We we actually kept three meters away, and we had a good flow through of air. We never, we never. It was weird. We we're kind of used now to keeping a distance away. It's it's we we had good fun. So that was nice. But we uh, that was all very socially distanced. Uh, and every evening I go for a little walk and then I go up to the tube station because the tube station has really good Wi-Fi. The one up the road has. The one down the road is bloody awful Wi-Fi. The one up the road is good. So I stood there the other day, logged into Virgin Wi-Fi and I started downloading all my TV shows, which was very good. Very good. Because, uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting, though. I'm watching a lot of people, I think because the tube stations don't have guards on the, the gates anymore. 
I'm watching a lot of people who aren't paying for their tickets. They're just walking through. The gates aren't open, but they found that the the one that you open to take your luggage through, they just walk through that, and it, the, the alarm doesn't go off. So a lot of people are being being a little bit bad about that. So yeah, not paying for their tickets. So when the tube system goes bankrupt, they're to blame, and they'll be the ones going. Well, I can't get I can't get to work. Yep, it's because you didn't pay your bl- bloody ticket, bastards. Anyway, so I've been downloading lots of programs, which has been good. Catching up on Bake Off. Obviously, I haven't watched this week's episode. Don't tell me what happened. Uh, Crystal May is the new series. Well, not new series, but the one with Richard Iowadi. That's good. Taskmaster is back on. Good. As you notice, I, I nothing. No true crime on my list. Can't be asked with true crime. I think because it's twenty four hours a day, seven days a week with me. So the last thing I want at the end of the day is to sit down and have my dinner and watch watch another murdery thing. It's just so depressing. It's ugh. I want something fun and exciting and something different. So yeah, I did watch Murder in the Outback, the Falconio story, which was interesting. I enjoyed that. I thought there was uh, some nice, interesting angles on that. A, a nicely made true crime documentary, as opposed to a lot of the shit that's on Channel 5. The shit on Channel 5 and the shit that's uh, some of, the, uh, some of the, the, the more tabloidy channels. God, they're terrible. You can tell if they're shit because they have flashy graphics. Uh, let's do this, so... There. I was watching one recently. I won't say what case it was for, and because I know the case quite well, I was watching it. And I was going, "Holy shit!" I was literally ticking off all the mistakes that they'd made—mistakes about names, places, people. This is just a botch, and that's just like these people have been commissioned by the channel to make these programs, and then unfortunately, people are watching this program and going, "Oh yeah, this is exactly how it happened." It's like, no, it's not. It's not. It's it's absolute shit. If if you're a true crime fan, don't focus on lots of true crime. Do do this as a really good idea. Sit down for a year, just focus on one case, make that your expertise, and focus on it, and then go and watch all the programs out there, and you'll see it. You'll see how vague it is. A lot of them really no real research, real just absolute wishy washy. So yeah, the the last program I watched, I won't say what it was, what it's for, but God, it was terrible, really bad. So and yet people got paid good money to do that right let's do some questions uh some of them are probably balls up and then uh i will uh, have my cup of tea there's no cake today because i was racing through this script so i wanted to get it done yesterday get it all finished by yesterday uh and not hang over for another day so this is wednesday today i didn't want it to hang over so uh i i didn't get a chance to go to the shops also, because what I've realised now is in midnight, in the old days, pre-COVID, you could go to the shops and there was like, you go, oh, look, muffins, and you could pick up handmade muffins and stuff like that. Whereas now, if you go to Lidl or Tesco's, you know, if they're not sealed in a bag, and I know that doesn't make a lot of difference because someone would have had to put it in a bag, you kind of look at it and you go, how many people have walked past that all day and kind of coughed and spluttered? It's, not, it's like when you go to a, a greengrocer's and the greengrocer's is on a road, and I just think to myself... Uh, that's had like loads of people walking past but also it's covered in car fumes and shit and stuff like that and you just think why would I want to buy some fruit from a roadside greengrocers it's just uh, it's grim so uh, now I can't buy cake from uh, 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 you know when they're exposed sitting and I I miss that so I'm missing out on lots of good cake so I've got no cake today god damn it I might have to buy some later on some secret cake right let's do some questions Uh, here we go get ready Question number one. What was Sir Bernard's middle name? 
Mm, it was right at the start. Do you remember it? What was Sir Bernard's middle name? Uh, question number two. Where was he born? Ooh. Where was he born? Ooh, these are this could be quite difficult. Question number three. Sir Bernard was a doctor, but what was the title of August Pepper? Mm. Convenient little omission there by me, but for deliberate purposes. Question number four. What was the name of Cora's true love? So Cora Crippen had a true love. What was his name? Question number five. Where did the Crippens live? Actually, there was two places in there. The first one was actually 34 Store Street in uh, Bloomsbury. They lived actually a couple of locations. But what was the primary address, the main one we all talk about? Where did they live? Question six. What was the name of the patent medicine company that Crippen worked for? Lovely name. Question number four. Question number seven. What was the name of Cora's sister? Question number eight. Which store did Spilsbury's first notable case feature in? So there was a uh, a murder manslaughter case. What store, famous London store, did it feature in? You probably all got that one. Question number nine. Which hospital did Pepper and Spilsbury work at? At their primary hospital. Because uh, obviously they worked at lots, lots of hospitals. Uh, question number ten. How many cigarettes did Spilsbury did Spilsbury smoke on average each day? <sighs> My mouth has struggled to say words today. Okay, so uh, let's go through some things. There was a couple of things I would that I took out of the case to because it was getting a bit long. Uh, so I took it out to kind of speed things up. Uh, as mentioned, Spilsbury was quite an outspoken man. Uh, very uh, liked his own opinions and was. Uh, quite divisive he was a frequent speaker at the medico legal society Um, he believed that he was a man who very much believed in medicine but he really didn't believe in person Um, he quite often spoke out in cases in terms of infanticide so prior to 1929 and the infanticide act uh, mothers would be charged with murder if a newborn baby died in what seemed suspicious circumstances obviously this is an era before uh, our knowledge of cot death um Uh, Often in speeches, he would refer to women as uh, uh, ignorant, uh, saying that they they couldn't tell the difference between whether their baby was dead or alive. Uh, Quite an unpleasant man. man. Uh, He had strong beliefs on sexual diseases. Uh, He believed that anyone who had gonorrhea should be notified uh, to the authorities. Uh, He loved coming up with new exciting theories, which always went against the grain and and traditional beliefs. Uh, He had a strong dislike for female doctors. He was opposed to abortion, even in the case of rape. Uh, it was uh, th- There was a case I might get to at some point in Murder Mile. I'm not too sure because it's not quite a murder case. But uh, he, uh, as a doctor, um, so a young girl was raped. Oh, I, sorry, a young girl was gang raped by the Queen's horse guards. Uh, and Spilsbury, uh, she had the baby aborted because of that, quite rightly. And uh, he was a doctor who kind of uh, defended the horse guards on that one so uh yeah uh, he also believed that homosexuality was uh unnatural um and that there would be treatments and cures for homosexuality he also d- disagreed with women being on juries uh i took that one out because it was quite a large section but um 
Uh, as you can see, he's he's quite an opinionated man, quite up his own ass. Uh, I'm wondering if I can tell you more about his first notable case. I might not, because I think it gives away too much. No, I'm not going to do that. Uh, so uh, the Crippen trial, as you know, it's very sensational. It was kind of across all the papers. There are the committal hearings at the Bow Street Magistrates Court, which we've mentioned before. It's at the back of uh, Covent Garden. And then uh, uh, a month later, there was the, the criminal court at the Old Bailey, which is also known as the Central Criminal Court. Uh, prosecution, as mentioned, they knew that all their evidence was entirely circumstantial. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, uh, obviously, they, they had no real way to prove that Cora Crippen was dead or that she was alive. It's kind of there's a lot of long shots with this. The, the flash of skin that they had was literally—I mean, there was nothing on it. There wasn't any birthmarks on it. Uh, it wasn't like she'd written her name on it or anything like that. Uh, so Richard Muir, who headed up the prosecution. I was aware of Spilsbury's work because of the his first notable case, and obviously people wanted to use him around that point. Uh, he was uh, Crippen was represented by what was his name? It's Albert Tobin. Albert Tobin. Albert Tobin uh, Casey, uh, who was good, but uh, he was uh, very inexperienced and was very much out of out of his death at that point. Uh, out of his death. Out out of his depths. <laughs> My mouth has just disappeared all day. Um, let's try and dive into some stuff that I may not have said. So, okay, uh, as it was mentioned, Pepper was the first witness on, and what they wanted to do was say, okay, you've got you've got the the body organs that are found in the cellar and the scar tissue that we're we're focusing on today. Um, obviously, this had been in uh uh buried under four feet of soil in his cellar, which was slightly waterlogged, and it had been there for about six months before they'd found it. Uh, obviously, if the body had been buried, they're suggesting that the body was buried uh, uh, 1st of February, which was uh, the day after Cora was last, last seen. Um, and obviously the defence said, well, uh, why isn't it decayed? Obviously, it's been in the soil for six months. It should have decayed a lot more. And, and Pepper was the one who was saying, well, do you know, um, whoever had put the body in the soil had used a quicklime on top. And because it was waterlogged, the quicklime had actually, instead of instead of causing it to, de- uh, causing the body to... Because you put quicklime on to kind of uh, speed things up, stuff like that, to speed up the putrefaction. But obviously, because it was waterlogged, it actually uh, conversely turned it around. So, uh, so that it, that delayed the putrefaction. So there was very little left. So, which is why he said it was it was the skin was in an excellent state, whereas normally it would be in like a really horrible, shriveled state, and you wouldn't be able to see scars and things like that. Uh, in fact, some of the people actually said that even the scar itself. Do you know we mentioned before that uh, a lot of the experts were brought in and they said they said it doesn't look like an operational scar. It looks like a uh, uh, it looks like a fold in the skin. Or they said because she was uh, uh, a lady in a, a, a late thirties, forties who was of a, of a slightly larger size. They said it was more than likely to be stretch marks, uh, which it could have been. Um, but even uh, some people said it could have been the way, uh, uh, to do with the burial itself, the way the skin had folded in the soil as well. So no one, no one could act abs- except Spilsbury and uh, Pepper. No one could actually say exactly what it was that uh, this case was. But th- so there's no conclusion as to this this being an absolute scar. And it was the the fact that it was an over ovariotomy scar, which Cora had ha- apparently she'd had that operation 18 years prior so that's three years before she met uh, Crippen 
the that scar was uh, that connects her with the scar connects to her which is mm, it doesn't really add up does it it's like if someone has an appendix scar you wouldn't say oh that's bob would you it's just ugh, it's uh it's very wishy-washy but uh obviously with the scar as well it went through a lot of different people and i briefly mentioned this in there but um different parts of the body has different uh depths of skin but also different types of uh, uh uh hair follicles as well so if you have the skin see at the start they said it was top of the thigh and a bit of buttock but then they said it was abdomen which is at the front so the front part should have had a belly button on it but there was no belly button on it and they did actually prove in court um from her sister they said that Cora Crippen did have a belly button okay so it should be there now if the skin did come from uh the front part of the abdomen uh they also said you know there should be pubic hairs there but they didn't find any pubic hairs um uh, but even if they would have found the skin from the slightly above the abdomen, there's special little tiny hairs that they would have found there. Uh, and the the scabaceous glands, which are microscopic oily glands uh, for hair follicles, they should have been there, but they didn't find any either. So uh, no one, even uh, any of the experts there, could really say exactly where the, where this patch of skin had come from. But it was Spilsbury and... Uh, Pepper, who were there saying, no, 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 it's definitely, it's from an ovariotomy. And because their evidence was believed, that was it. It kind of went forwards. It's also down to the fact that the, the cross-examination from the defence was absolutely terrible. I mean, as mentioned, the, the defence for Crippen, uh, his lawyer, uh, Albert, Albert, I keep saying, I know it's Alfred Tobin, uh, was uh, just, he was out of his depth. He didn't know what he was doing. He was He was young, he was cheap. Uh, you know he was trying to make a name for himself and it just it backfired massively um what else we got i just having a, a wheedle through here at the moment as mentioned as well do you know uh william wilcox who was the home office scientific uh advisor uh said that he'd found a fatal dose of hyacin in the organs as mentioned before high uh hydrobromide of hyacin it's a natural product. We st- it's not a natural product. It's it's one that's around all the time. We use it still today. We use it in a lot of cough remedies. Uh, you use it in travel sickness tablets. You you take like um, three hundred micrograms every six hours on that. So when you look at the five grains that he had bought as a herbalist, and he probably would have bought it in that quote quantities as well. I I did the maths on this. I sat down and worked it all out. Five grains of hyacin, a uh, hydrobromide of hyacin is uh, if you were to convert it into uh, travel sickness tablets, that would be about a 1,000 travel sickness tablets. So, you know, given the fact that he is a herbalist and given the fact that he, that's what he does for a living, it kind of makes sense that he would buy five grains worth. You know, that kind of covers it. Uh, but uh, William Wilcox said that uh, in the liver that they found there, they found, uh, they found the equivalent of half a grain. So uh, that would be a fatal amount, but it's kind of convenient that they found you know the um, the amount that would have been fatal and the exact drug that he had purchased as mentioned as well it's kind of odd as well do you know uh, uh, Crippen had access to loads of drugs do you know he had loads of drugs that he could have used that would have been entirely useful and entirely uh, and probably not traceable as well but do you know this one was used to sell and it's weird to use a kind of a, a cough suppressant admittedly something that could be fatal but don't forget vitamin a is fatal in high doses so you know everything's fatal if you don't use it properly uh sugar 
sugar is fatal, as we all know. So, uh, what else have we got? Let's whiz through. Um, we got the execution of Crippen. That was at uh, Pentonville Prison on the 23rd of November 1910. He was hanged by John Ellis. Uh, the appeal was sent to the Home Secretary Winston Churchill and he rejected it. Um, even even like seven years afterwards, uh, Dr. Turnbull, who, who was the doctor for the defence on this, he uh, examined the scar tissue under a microscope again and said that there no hair, no hair follicles or a sebaceous glands could be found. So therefore, it definitely was not abdominal skin. Uh, the slides are still held at the Royal London Hospital Archives. Um, and in 2002, Professor Barnard Knight re-examined them and said he found no evidence of scar tissue and that it was most likely a fold. So this is 2002. So obviously using, using not like the, tele, uh, the telescopes, microscopes from 1910. He's using ones, you know. 90 years later so the the best ones you could find and he said it was most likely a fold not scar tissue uh what else we got what else we got so we've got a lot of cases that sir bernard worked across across his uh history i'm not saying that all of them are false i'm not saying that he's sub subverted uh evidence in all of these cases but you've got to consider this so um Jeannie Baxter is a case that I'm hoping to come to on Murder Mile. I'm not going to go, give away too much. She said that her, her boyfriend committed suicide. Spilsbury said, no, it wasn't. She murdered him. Uh, as mentioned, Patrick Marne, who murdered Elm, Emily Bell Bicay, if you remember, he took her down to the coast. He, uh, she was pregnant. He cut her up into bits, burnt her head in the fire. There was no head left. But Spilsbury said it was likely that she died by being a blow to the head. But there's no head, so you couldn't prove that. Same with Louis Voisin, the body was cut up into pieces, but Spilsbury was able to prove how she had died, even though he'd chopped her up into various chunks. Uh, there's lots of things like, um, as I mentioned, like uh, arsenic, which most experts hadn't found in various cases, but Spilsbury miraculously did find. Um, and if you think about it, this is kind of useful as well. Um, you... you you're probably thinking to yourself, okay, uh, if this was Spilsbury and the police fabricating this, how did you know? How did the body appear in his basement? Because we've already mentioned, you know, why would Crippen bury part of a body having got rid of ninety percent of the body successfully that has never been found? Why would he bury half a part of the body, a small part, in his basement, wrapped in his pajamas with a swatch of her own hair and things related to him? It doesn't make any sense at all. Um, but how could the medical experts, how would they be able to take a small piece of skin and conclusively say it's definitely this person when the evidence that we've just mentioned recently, and we'll come on to the DNA, says it was a man? Well, consider this. This is another story that I didn't mention in here, but consider the case of Glyndor Michael, which Sir Bentley Purchase and Sir Bernard Spilsbury were both involved in. That's episode 40. So that was the one with the homeless man uh, who died of poisoning, they dressed him up like an officer. They dumped him out at sea to make it, make it look like he died in a plane crash. And he had a special uh, uh, paperwork on him that said the invasion is going to take place in Sicily uh, for D-Day, when actually, as we know, it was Normandy. And it was deliberately to kind of divert the, the Nazis, which it did successfully. What they were able to do there was to take an entirely homeless man who'd, you know, uh, lived a really horrible life, 
make him look like a, a respected officer, put all the details on him, but also medically make it look like he drowned in the sea. And he hadn't drowned in the sea. He died of pneumonia. But they were able they were able to do that. They were able to make it work just right. So, <coughs> and this is 30 years later. So were the medical experts able to take one person and make them look like someone else? Absolutely, of course they could. And it was uh, Sir, Sir Bernard Spilsbury who was one of the people who was able to do that. Um... Now, just to point out, the DNA of, uh, as mentioned at the end of Cora Crippen, uh, Dr. David Ferran of the Michigan State University, he took the slide. It was still preserved uh, in the glass slide that Spilsbury had done. It was held at the Royal London Hospital. Uh, he subjected to, to DNA testing, uh, compared it to the mitochondrial DNA of three of Cora's great nieces. So she, don't forget, she has some sisters. Uh, and they, they proved that it wasn't Cora Crippen. Uh, and that the the tissue belonged to a male. Uh, now this is being disputed. Some scientists have uh, questioned the validity of this. Um, it's it, it, you know it doesn't matter what way you go into it. Some people are going to say yes, this is perfect. Some people are going to say it's invalid. Uh, it's a piece of DNA from a hundred years ago. But you know if the DNA as te- medical testing gets better and better, we can keep testing it. But you know we probably can't prove whether it definitely was Cora Crippen but the fact that you can you can say with a a piece of DNA you can you can tell the difference between a man and a woman that's a very basic thing right from the start that's all I think that's all you really need at that point you really don't need to know was it Cora Crippen or not the fact that it's male DNA bang that's enough that's all you need so where was Cora Crippen who 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 knows really that's a uh, a fascinating story um it's some people have said that there is some evidence that cora visited her sister over in chicago she registered there and she met up with her her true love whose name i can't mention because it's in the quiz uh so uh why didn't she come forwards if she did it was still alive who knows who knows maybe maybe the fact that she thought do you know, it had all gone on to wraps because don't forget it had disappeared for six months. No one really cared. She thought, well, no one's looking for me. I'll just disappear. I'll go off back to uh, America and, and lay low. And obviously when the murder trial started happening, she was like, oh, shit. Uh, do you know, she's gone beyond the point. But who knows? Maybe she is dead. Who knows? Who absolutely knows? So uh, one of the things with uh, hyacinth bromide is it's also an antidepressant as well. Uh, and there was evidence that uh, Crippen and uh, Cora Crippen were both on antidepressants. So um, there could be, could be she might have committed suicide. But this is an, another thing that's really odd in there. Even the police admitted that uh, if Crippen is a poisoner, why did he cut her up? That's something that they couldn't work out is that that's not what poisoners do. Poisoners are poisoners. Um, you poison someone and they die, but you don't mutilate the body it's 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 something that just doesn't it, it doesn't happen if you if you're a sadistic person you will mutilate a body and you you know you've got that kind of ability to do that whereas a poisoner is in a way is they're a kind of a coward and poisoning suits Crippen down to a t because he's small he's meek he's a little bit vulnerable he's got access to drugs do you know he can poison someone and not be in the room with them you know he can he can be on a different street in a different different city and be away from them when they die that's kind of his mo that would work but cripping and mutilating someone doesn't make sense 
anyway, we will never know. It's one of those cases that we just never know. It's like, you know, there's lots of theories out there, but will we ever know? No, of course we won't. Because we weren't there, we, we didn't see it. So these are all conjecture, really. Um, just going into a little bit about the, 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 the death or suicide of uh, Spilsbury. Uh, his sister Constance had died uh, in March 1942, and that greatly upset him. Um, his son, Peter, was house surgeon at St Thomas's Hospital. Obviously, he was the one uh, that he had all of his hopes into. Unfortunately, he was killed during an air raid on the 15th of September 1940. Uh, he'd got another son called Alan, who worked uh, uh, for a little while as uh, Sir Bernard's assistant. Uh, because Alan was epileptic, uh, that meant he couldn't be enlisted into war service, so he actually worked with his father a lot. Uh, he died in November 1945, so the end of World War Two of tuberculosis. Uh, um, and after that point, after Alan's death, uh, because they worked together in his lab at the uh, Department of Pathology, I believe, uh, the uh, Univers University College Hospital on Gower Street, this is not far from uh, Euston Square, uh, he wouldn't let anyone come into his office after that. He, it was, it, it, it almost became like a bit of a shrine to both of his sons. Um, as I mentioned, his physical health wasn't particularly good. He was a 50-a-day smoker. He got circulatory problems. He had no sense of smell. He had uh, dizzy, dizzy patches. Uh, he'd had two strokes uh, from that point. So he had a lot of mobility problems. These are two strokes in 1940 and 45, which, when you think about it, that's, that's the same uh, years as the death of both sons and his sister as well. Um his marriage to his wife had broken down by that point. Uh, she was living in Solihull, which was where she came from originally. And he was living in rented lodgings at Frognall, uh, which is the Langdorf Hotel on the Finchley Road. Uh, but as mentioned, his, um, his autopsies weren't going that well. He was kind of churning through them. He was kind of making a little bit of money off them. But it's like his heart wasn't in it anymore. And he was, he was overworked. And he tried to resign about four or five times before. But he just he couldn't end up resigning um his final big case at the old bailey was the charlotte street robbery which was we've mentioned you can go back and listen to that episode uh when he was doing the autopsy for alec and antiquitous ali alec de antiquitous i struggled with that name during that episode as well uh he was the guy on the motorbike who came forward to kind of stop the the robbers escaping escaping and he got shot dead um when the autopsy was happening, Sir Bernard didn't notice that a bullet had fallen out onto the floor uh, when the others in the room, so the police were there and, uh, uh, yeah, I think it was the police detectives were there. They noticed it and they, they were the ones actually picked up the, the bullet and had to put it back on the table for him because he didn't notice what was going on. Uh, by this point, he was short on money, apparently, which is weird because he's got £9,000 in his bank account. Uh, he was being paid per autopsy. Therefore, he was literally just churning them out. Uh, what else do we have? Um, interestingly, just before that point, uh, um, he'd almost ran out of post-mortem forms that were running low and he, he, he hadn't replaced them, which was weird because he, he was kind of used to keeping on top of stuff. He seemed weary. Uh, and he'd made references to people, even though he was quite an intensely private man, he'd made reference to people that he was you know, coming to the end and he was fed up now. Uh, so in the in his... Uh, so that evening, uh, 17th of December 1947, he left the Langdorf Hotel where he lived. Uh, they said he wasn't his usual cheery self. 
He drove to Hampstead Mortuary to finish off a remaining autopsy. He went back to the hotel and left his key on the dressing table. Uh, there was no suicide note. He returned his his car to the garage in fin Finchley Road, and because it was close to Christmas, he gave gifts to all the staff. He returned his locker key to the porter, uh, the junior Carlton Club that he was uh, a member of, and then and there he had his final meal. Um, Seven thirty arrived in his lab uh, at the I got it right here, the D Department of Pharmacology. I apologise, it was in there on uh, Gower Street. Uh, 4.30pm he arrived, he hung up his hat and coat, surrounded by his index card system, he had a, a, he'd created an index card system and his, his handwriting's terrible but he kept all notes on every single case he did, did and they're, they're still available at the Welcome Collection, uh, not far from where his offices were. Um, I sorted out some of his files and his experiments, it was quite quiet, he was sitting there by himself obviously, he's got his little shrine to his dead sons there as well. Uh, he destroyed some papers. We're not too sure what he destroyed. Maybe something to do with Crippen. We don't know. Uh, he also destroyed a photo of himself and his wife, Evelyn. It says Evelyn here, but I'm sure her name was Edith. Um, uh, who cares? Uh, and then he sat on a cheap wooden chair in his laboratory and turned on the gas tap. Now, we don't know whether he he turned it on by mistake or whether or whether it was on and he couldn't smell that it was on. But at 8.10, a laboratory technician came by, saw that he was unconscious on the floor, faint pulse. They tried artificial respiration, but he was declared dead at 9.10 p.m. Uh, he got £9,000 in his will, which is a big old chunk of money. Uh, he'd left it all to his wife. Um... Uh, uh, yeah, and as mentioned, Sir Bentley Purchase did the, who was his uh, good friend and coroner, did the autopsy uh, and said that he uh, his death by suicide whilst um, the balance of his mind was disturbed. Uh, I think I was it. What else was on there? So uh, there, there were some cases that are still uh, regarded as unsafe at the moment. Uh, so... Uh, some of them, there are posthumous pardons, which is kind of irrelevant. Posthumous pardons being sought for these people. So uh, David Greenwood and Sidney Fox, as mentioned. Uh, I mentioned a few, but uh, Linford Derrick. Uh, uh, I'm not going to go into the case because I might use it later in Murder Mile, but there were some real fundamental errors in that case, which led uh, to the conclusion of that case. Uh, uh, Donald Merriton george kitchen there were some uh, very flawed experiments using guns uh, i'm going to come back to that because the uh, genie baxter case relates to this as well um quite often they said in quite a few cases uh he embellished a lot of his evidence um as mentioned as some evidence he just kind of ignored as well and there's one case as well where obviously he was very anti-homosexual and actually the the twisting of the evidence on that case um he converted it into hard fact, whereas actually it was more of just uh, kind of a bigoted opinion on his behalf. So there's a lot of cases out there that are still, still a little bit, uh, you know, to be to be continued. So that kind of people are still going through them now. But I think the Cripping case is kind of the big one there, where people go, mm, did that? Was that hard evidence? Because if you think about it now, it's like the Cripping case. Would he be tried in a court of law today? Probably not. I mean, obviously, we've got more technical advances, but if you were to say all we've got is a swatch of skin with a possible uh, scar, I mean, we could you've got the DNA there now, so we could check it now. We could go, yes, okay, that's... If this happened, 
if the murder happened last week, we could check it. We could go, okay, yeah, that's definitely Carl Crippen. They'd be able to, you know, say it was, uh, there's a a hundred billion percent, uh, one in 100 billion percent chance that this is Carl Crippen, isn't Carl Crippen. It's like, okay, fine, then it is Kerr. Do you know, they always come up with those stupid maths that they have to do. Why don't they just say, because there's only, what, less than eight billion people in the world. Why don't they just say the chance of it being her is uh, 100%. Why come up with these stupid maths? Like uh, 57 point, uh, 1 in 57.6 million. It's like piss off. Anyway. Uh, right, let's do answers to those questions. Oh, answers to the questions. I'm not going to have my tea. I haven't had my tea yet. Right. I've got biscuits as well. I've got hobnobs. Not proper ones, but the, the cheap little ones, which are quite nice because the chocolate's a bit thicker. Right. Question number one. What was Sir Bernard's middle name? The answer was Henry. Question two. Where was he born? He was born in Leamington Spa. Just to say, anyone, if you if you uh, go onto Wikipedia, oh, you know I hate Wikipedia. Please don't go on Wikipedia and then email me and go, you got this detail wrong. I with the Wikipedia entry is so full of mistakes. I was using I was using the uh, files from the National Archives, and if you go to the Old Bailey, uh, Old Bailey Archive online, they've got all the original transcripts. And I was using those, and I was double checking everything. I was going, hang on, and I just realised that the, the Wikipedia entry is so riddled with mistakes. So whatever you do, don't use that. Don't look at it. If you, if you can, just just type in Doctor Crippen. Uh, Old Bailey, and it's all there, everything you need to know. Uh, question three. Oh, here's a good one. Question three. Sir Bernard was a doctor, but what title was August Pepper? The answer was Mister. He was neither. He wasn't. He wasn't. He wasn't a doctor or a professor. He was. A, he was just a straight old doctor. Which is interesting because I worried halfway through writing this case because if he was a doctor, he would be Dr. Pepper. Yes, I would have struggled to write an episode about Dr. Pepper. Uh, Question four. What was the name of Cora's true love? Her true love was called Bruce Miller. Bruce Miller, would you let me go? Let me go. Bruce Miller, would you let me go? Let me go. Uh, episode five. Episode five. Question five. Uh, where did where did the Crippins live? Their main house was at thirty nine Hilldrop Crescent. Uh, building doesn't exist anymore. It was demolished many years ago, uh, and there's some there's some uh, crappy flats in its place. Uh, question six. What was the name of the patent medicine company that Crippen worked for? Oh, burped. It was, it was cheese and toast, that was, uh, Munion's Remedies. A lovely name, Munion's Remedies. Question seven. What was the name of Cora's sister? It was Teresa Hun. Question eight. Which store did Spilsbury's first notable case feature in? That was Harrods, which of course featured in uh, the episode two weeks ago uh, with uh, uh, Desmond O'Byrne. Question nine. Which hospital did Pepper and Spilsbury work at? That was St Mary's. And question ten. 
How many cigarettes did Spilsbury smoke every day on average? Apparently he was a 50 a day smoker. So that's that. Hope you enjoyed that call. That was a long extra mile as well. So let, let's hang up on that. Uh, uh, hope you enjoyed that. That was an interesting one. Next week, we've got the start of a four-parter. I get ready. I look forward to hearing people whinge at me about, oh, I don't like four-parters because I like to binge it. So what? Uh, it's a four-parter. I'm looking forward to that. The research is almost done. I mean, it's a difficult case to, to get my uh, head around. But, oh, it's going to be good. So that starts next week, and that will take us right up to Christmas Eve. Uh, so uh, I'm going to say goodbye. Have yourselves a good day. Be safe. Be good. Look after yourselves. Okay, lots of love. Bye-bye. 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 Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.